Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter number. You've got a, you know you've got a Bible study tonight. It's got its own sheet. Amen. Did everybody get one of the uh, Bible study sheets? If you didn't, they're out there in the foyer. You can grab one. Uh, if, if we run out for some reason, uh, we can't make you copies because Jennifer went to the judgment house. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 15. What we've been doing is we've been looking through the passion passages, the parts in Scripture where um, uh, what, what is described as the passion. Right, and what is the passion? It's Jesus uh, going to the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, and we've been tracking along with Mark, and tonight we're going to come to the section where Jesus actually gets crucified. You know, eventually, you know, we finally come here to this part, but everybody, everywhere, eventually has to come to the cross of Jesus. The, the cross is a crossroads, if you uh, will. Look at this next slide. Look at this slide. Mean, mean eye, mean look, mean look. Crossroads of the cross. You either believe it or you don't. Right? It's, it's a choice. There's only two options. There's not a third road. There's not a third way, right? You have to go right or go left. Either you believe it or you don't. There's no halfway. You either cling to the cross or you're just callous towards it. You receive it or you reject it. There's no third response. The cross divides all of humanity. And a choice has to be made whenever we're confronted with the cross. Look in your notes at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross divides the entire human race for all of human existence into two groups, right? Those who are perishing and those who are saved. That's it. That's the only categories that matter. Those who really believe and those who don't, one or the other. Eternal destiny is decided by what you believe about the cross. Look at this next slide. The cross either st- good job. All right. The cross either stands between you and heaven or it stands between you and hell. One or the other. Right? It's the very crux of our faith. That's why the overwhelming emphasis, by the way, is on the death, burial, and resurrection. The overwhelming emphasis of all of the New Testament is on the death, burial, and resurrection, right? It's not the birth of Jesus isn't the focus. The life of Jesus isn't the focus. It is absolutely the death, burial, and resurrection. The Apostle Paul wrote half of the New Testament, and he never even mentions a sermon that Jesus preached or miracles necessarily that he did. He didn't talk about Jesus' parables. He didn't talk about what a swell guy Jesus was. He didn't talk about his friends or the places that he went. What Paul focused on was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the whole thing. The cross is everything. Eternity hangs in the balance one way or the other with what you're going to do with the cross. Matter of fact, uh, look in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, why did he come? To teach good lessons and, and do nice things and be a wonderful example? All those things are included, but he came to die. 
He came to go to the cross. He came to die so that we may live. That's the whole point. So tonight, I'm not even going to spend a whole lot of time looking at how Jesus died, but more on why Jesus died. Because when it comes to the crucifixion, when you look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't get into all the gory details, right? He doesn't kind of dwell on that. Mark's point isn't to even make you feel sorry for Jesus. His whole point is to push you towards faith in Jesus. He's not, you know, getting down to all those kind of gory details that sometimes we want to know about. Because the point is, and we talked about this last week, but you can feel bad for Jesus and still not follow Jesus. You can feel pity for Jesus and still not follow Jesus. And so tonight we're going to focus on the purpose. Everybody got your Bible? Mark chapter 15. Let's start in verse number 16. It says this, and we have got several passages to go through. It says this, Then the soldiers led him away in the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Elo, 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 I learned that, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabatini, but I've since learned that's not the proper uh, pronunciation, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and uh, Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. That's a long passage. Jesus 
on the cross. Number one, write this down. We've talked about this a few times recently. He fulfilled scripture. And that's one of the focuses that Mark gives us is the fact that Jesus, that some people feel like the Old Testament is irrelevant and doesn't really have any standing for us today. If it wasn't for the Old Testament, you wouldn't understand the New Testament. Without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make sense. Ha! I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You deserve a better pastor. I'm not even going to pretend. Did, did anybody see that coming, though? Did y'all see me? I was like, ooh, I'm going to get her. I'm going to get her. And that's, something, that's live on Facebook, too, there. The whole world's watching this. They're not going to come to this church. That preacher will get you. What was I even saying? Fulfilled scripture, Old Testament, Right? Yeah, I know. God tells us in the Old Testament, God is telling us what he's going to do. In the New Testament, uh, he does it. In the Gospels, he does it. And then the rest of the New Testament, explaining to us what he did. The Old Testament contains, we talked about this recently, but over 300 prophecies, direct prophecies about Jesus. Things that were written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born about how he would live and how he would die. 25 of them are specific predictions about his suffering and death. Why would God go through so much trouble to give us so many exact predictions about who the Messiah was going to be? Every fulfilled prophecy is the finger of God pointing at Jesus, saying this is him. This is him, the Savior of the world. Now, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, if you break it down, what we have here are eight very specific fulfilled prophecies about the Messiah, at least eight. And so I put the Old Testament scriptures there in your notes, right? So we're going to look at the prophecy. Then we're going to look at the fulfillment in the Gospel of Mark. Look at this verse, Isaiah 50, verse 6. By the way, the people reading Mark would have picked up on this immediately when they saw it. Isaiah 56 says, I gave, we looked at this one uh, this last Sunday. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheek to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now, what does Mark tell us? Look in your Bible at Mark 15, verse 19. It says, then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him and bowing the knee, they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took their purple off him, put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And Psalm 69, verse 21, it says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. What does Mark say in chapter 15, verse 23? He says, Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, and he did not take it. Right? Um, again, this, this wine, this, this would have been a primitive drug to dull the pain. That's what, that's what they're trying to give him. He said, Nope that he was going to face it all 100%. Prophecy, look in your notes at Psalm 22, verse 16. He says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Right? Here he's saying they pierced my hands and they pierced my feet. Look in verse number 24 in Mark chapter 15. It says, And when they had crucified him. When this verse in Psalm was written hundreds of years before, when this verse in Psalm was written, crucifixion didn't even exist yet. Nobody had ever seen anybody crucified, right? Um, it's wild and it's incredible that a thousand years before Jesus is crucified, you have scripture teaching you how Jesus was going to die before anybody had even dreamed this up. How is that even possible? Well, God wrote it. Psalm 22, verse 18, another prophecy. They divide my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? In Mark 15, verse 24, the last part says, They divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. 
I mean, it's incredible precision. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, he's, he's up there with the guilty. Look at verse 27 in your Bible. He says, with him they also crucified two robbers, the transgressors. That was prophesied all the way back in the book of Isaiah. Right? One on his right, one on his left. Psalm 22, verse 7, prophecy. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and they shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Well, the fulfillment, look in verse 29. It says, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, he saved others. Right? Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Right? How ignorant and ironic. It wasn't that he couldn't come down, it's just that he wouldn't. If Jesus had saved himself, he couldn't have saved you, and he couldn't have saved me. And these men claimed they would have believed if he'd come down. Isn't that ironic? They said that they would have believed if he came down off the cross. You know what? They wouldn't have. They didn't believe any of the other miracles. They wouldn't have believed this one. Now, it's a lie, but they claim they would have believed that he'd come down. But the reason why I believe is because he didn't come down. Amos, look in your notes. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I'll make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Well, what did Mark say happened? Mark 15, verse 33. He says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour was noon, the ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. So from 12 to 3, total, inexplainable darkness. One more prophecy, Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? And Mark 15, verse 34, it says, And at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why is this significant? Okay. Um, you know the numbers and the verses and the chapters in your Bible were added later, right? That's not original, right? Mark chapter 15 is something that we came up with later to help organize Scripture so that we could learn it and teach from it, reference points and things like that. And when the book of Mark was originally written, there was no numbers. Mark didn't write down chapter 1, verse 1, and then write a verse, and then go verse 2 and write a verse. No, 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 that's the way that we've divided it up since then, uh, just for organization and for readability and things like that. So when Jesus here, when he's on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What they would do back then, often if you're referring to a psalm or a proverb, you would say the first verse. And because all the devout Jews, most of these Jewish people, they would know exactly what you're talking about. So when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, Psalm 22. You know, instead of saying, hey, guys, everybody go home, look up Psalm 22. It's all about me. He just says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everybody there knew that he was pointing uh, to himself in Psalm 22. It's all about Jesus. 
Now, some people, now maybe you're tempted to think like this, they try to ex explain away the prophecies of Jesus, arguing that people went back and they revised the Scripture, the Old Testament passages, to match what happened in the New Testament, or these guys in the New Testament were so smart that they lined it up to match all these prophecies exactly in the Old Testament. doesn't make sense. i got to be honest with you, the disciples were a bunch of dummies. Amen? And they just weren't that sharp. They weren't that great. But let me ask you, thinking about the Old Testament being tampered with, have you ever heard somebody say this? How can you believe that's the Word of God? Man wrote that, and, you know, we make mistakes. And no telling how many errors are in there down the hundreds of years since it's been written. Look at this next slide. Have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Discovered in the 1940s in those caves? They found these Old Testament manuscripts that had not been touched. They hadn't been touched since the time before Christ. They confirmed that what we have today in the, the, the portions that were included in the Dead Sea Scrolls haven't changed at all. There were some minor changes, but like, you know, um, it's like the sentence, I'm, I'm making this up, it was minor grammatical things. The meaning of nothing changed. It lined up so exactly with the, the translation with what you have today, it's unreal. This idea that scripture was written by men, generation after generation, making mistakes year after year, da, 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 the, the Dead Sea Scrolls absolutely throw that concept out the window. That's not what happened. That, the Dead Sea Scrolls match up with what you have in your Old Testament right now in a very 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 precise way but then uh, over the years mathematicians have given us what are the chances of somebody accidentally meeting all these criteria a guy named pete stoner he was a mathematician i think he's the same guy dr rogers used to quote on this but he did a whole book and he basically did the mathematics what's the mathematical chance that somebody would accidentally meet all these criteria they're written within hundreds of years of each other but some of them a thousand years before christ is even born what are the odds mathematically that a man would come along and fulfill all those well he said just eight remember i think that's what we covered tonight eight he said the mathematical probability of eight of these predictions being fulfilled accurately is one in a septillion Well, look at the, here's what, it, here's what a septillion. Look at that, one in the, those many, that many. That's the mathematical chance. Septillion, it's a 10 with 21 zeros behind it. That's the mathematical chance that Jesus, oops, accidentally matched just eight of the criteria they're written hundreds of years before he was born. I don't know about you, uh, but it doesn't seem like those odds are very good. Some of you got the same odds in the lottery, but you're still playing. Amen. This is a God thing. Jesus fulfilled Scripture. And that's important for you to understand so that you can believe the Bible. And you can believe... Oh, i, I, I got to move on tonight. I can't, I can't go off. Okay, listen. Jesus, remember when he was talking to the Pharisees? And they were like, we don't know about you, but our fathers, you know, Moses and Abraham and all that. And he says, uh, he goes, you don't believe them. You're, you're not the children of them. If you, if you really believed them, you would have believed what they wrote about me in the Old Testament. Jesus said, you would have believed what they wrote about me, but you don't believe. Abraham's not your father. Moses isn't your father. You don't even believe you know, what they said about me. And it's this idea of uh, Scripture being fulfilled is everything when it comes to faith in Christ. If you don't believe the Bible, you can't believe in Jesus. Not really. Because everything we know about Jesus, 
We get from this book that is absolutely reliable and has stood the test of time. And it will always stand the test of time. All right, so Jesus fulfilled Scripture. Number two, write this down. And through the cross, he changed lives. He changed lives. Pretty simple, but it's absolutely dramatic. Look at Mark 15, verse 21. It says, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. I just like that name. I like saying it. Rufus. And as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Isn't it interesting, hey guys, that a stranger named Simon had to carry Jesus' cross instead of Simon Peter? Who do you think would be there to carry the cross? Simon Peter. Where is he at? He's hiding. He said, they're killing people up in here. I'm staying home. It should have been Simon Peter. He promised to die with Jesus, but he didn't. Well, not yet. Simon Peter is nowhere to be found. So God chose another Simon, Simon of Cyrene, to help his son. Uh, He's North African. He's probably a black man, for all you racists, uh, who had traveled to eat the Passover lamb. Uh, He didn't eat the Passover lamb. He met the Passover lamb face to face. Um, you know Simon didn't want anything to do with this, right? Right? You ever catch yourself in the middle of something, and you're like, I ain't even supposed to be here. You know, I don't want to be here, and all this is going down. And, and that's Simon, right? He had no choice. When a Roman soldier says, hey, carry this, it was law. You had to carry it. What I love about Mark, I don't have the verses up for you. What I love about, oh, no, yeah, there, there it is. Uh, Simon of Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. This is so cool. Your Bible is so cool. What happens is, uh, Mark is going, hey, you know this guy. You know, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, right? Because Rufus is mentioned in Romans 16. Mark is the gospel that is written to persecuted Christians in Rome. And so Alexander and Rufus are Christians in the church at Rome. And so when Mark is writing this, he's writing this about Alexander and Rufus's daddy. So Alexander and Rufus's daddy met the Passover lamb, carried his cross, put his faith in Christ more than likely, and went home and took it to his family. His sons, Alexander and Rufus, were followers in the early, early church and part of the persecuted church in Rome. The man who carried the cross, his own children went on to follow Jesus. Some of your children aren't following Jesus because you never carried the cross. That's for free. That ain't even part of the Bible study. You just need to hear it. Their father, Simon, carried Jesus' cross up Calvary. And I, I just, I don't know. It's those little things like that in Scripture. I just love, right? The father of Alexander and Rufus. You know them. It's beautiful. Luke tells us of another changed life that's not included here. Mark, look in your notes at Luke 23, verse 39. It says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, get down and get baptized. Get down and join my church. Get down and pray facing east. Get down and fill out this form. Get down and join our new members class. Right? No. Jesus says, surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When? Today. Okay, I'm going to say, when? Today. This should remind every single one of us. Now, it's not too late for anybody. Anybody. 
Anybody. And it's not too late for you as a believer to keep praying, to keep serving, and keep inviting. It's not too late. God's not done. Right? This man's testimony is a reminder that nobody is saved by good works because he didn't have any. None. He literally had nothing, right, except to cry out to Jesus to save him. That's it. He can't attend church service. He can't read scripture. He can't give any money, right? He can't, you know, sign a form. He can't, you know, pray any pretty prayers. He can't go back and be nice to people. It's over for him. This is it. He does one thing. He believes. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And woe upon us if we ever add anything to it. Look at this next slide. Y'all recognize him? This is the worst participation I've ever had in a Bible study. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Y'all know who this guy is? Yeah! Yeah. Who is it? Michael Jordan, don't participate now. I'm already mad at you. Amen? I'm just kidding. One time, early in his career, Michael Jordan scored 69 points. And there was another player that was just kind of like a a NBA bench warmer type. I cannot remember his name, but I remember the story. And he got in the game that Michael Jordan scored 69 points, and uh, he got fouled once, and he hit one free throw. That's all he did in the whole game. And sometime later, they asked him about the highlights, you know, of being a professional basketball player, you know, and get to play with so many great names and all of that. And they asked him what his career highlight was. And he said, well, one time me and Michael Jordan scored 70 points in a game. (laughs) That's like us trying to add something to our salvation. You're right. It was Jesus, but plus, you know, I'm a good person. It's Jesus plus I got baptized. It's Jesus plus I'm a church member. It's Jesus plus I'm, a, I'm nice to people, right? It's Jesus plus, Jesus plus. But Jesus scored all those 69 points on his own. You didn't really contribute. God provided salvation. He's done all the work. Number three, write this down. Through his crucifixion, Jesus gives us uh, access to God. He gave access to God. We didn't have any access. Look at verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's very important. From top to bottom. The veil of the temple was a symbol of the barrier between God and man, right? Behind the veil is the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies uh, was where it had already departed before this, okay? But that's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt among the nation of Israel. It was the most sacred spot on the face of the earth. And in the Holy of Holies, uh, there was this chest called the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody ever seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, none of that was true. But there really was an Ark of the Covenant, and it looked somewhat, somewhat like what you saw in that movie. And on top of it was this gold section. It was called the Mercy Seat. And once a year, the high priest of Israel, right, and you were chosen for this. And as a matter of fact, if you go read uh, the Gospel of John, you can kind of see um, uh, this kind of played out in the beginning of John. But anyway, uh, uh, you, uh, the priest was chosen for this, and he would go into the Holy of Holies once a year beyond this veil that was torn when Jesus was crucified. He would go beyond this veil, and he would perform this ceremony, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. And that blood was to uh, atone for the sin of the people for a year, right? It's like one more year, Right? And um, it's actually a very dangerous thing, all right, because um, nobody was allowed back there. If you went back there and you weren't supposed to be back there, you would die, right? And if the high priest went back there and he did it wrong, he would die. I mean, it was a very serious 
thing. Matter of fact, tradition says that they would tie bells to the priests so that they would rattle and make noise when they're in there doing it so everybody could listen and know that he was still alive. And then uh, sometimes they would even tie a rope around his waist so that when he messed up and died, they could pull his body out because nobody was going in there to get it. All right? What am I trying to say? Look at this next slide. Failure was fatal. That's how sacred it was. Failure was fatal. It was separated by this veil. And only the high priest could go beyond it. Right? The blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. But God, again, it was ripped from where? From the top down. Only, right? And God ripped that veil in half. Look at this next slide. God, through his son, has torn down the barrier that separated him from people and now welcomes repentant sinners into his presence. Look in your notes. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Come on and come on. That's why I like to pray. A lot of times when I lead us, in a, like an opening prayer, a congregational prayer, I'll say, God, I'm so grateful that I have access to you right now because of what Jesus did. This is what I'm talking about. The veil being torn. That Jesus made that sacrifice once and for all that never has to be made again. Jesus gives us access to the Father. Nobody needs to go through a preacher. Nobody needs to go through a priest. And nobody needs to go through Jesus' mama to get to God. You get straight into the presence of God ourselves, and we don't have to ask anybody nothing. Christ has granted us access uh, because of what he did for us through the cross when we received that. Now, number four, write this down. You know this. He died for sin. So another thing that he accomplished on the cross was dying for our sin. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, it says, At the ninth hour. Now, what time was the ninth hour? Do you remember? Three o'clock? Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what time do you think that the Passover, that the priests would slaughter the Passover lamb? What time do you think, just coincidentally, that would be? Three o'clock, the ninth hour. And so here's the lamb of God, our Passover lamb, slain at the right time, on the right day, at the right place, in the right way. Now, of course, Jesus didn't die for his sin. He died for ours. That's the good news. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Jesus died for us, our substitute. It says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The great message of the cross, look at this next line, is the fact that when the soldiers nailed God's Son to the cross, God nailed your sin there too, man. My sin, your sin, it all went to the cross when you've trusted Him. God no longer deals with you as a sinner. Right? You're a beloved chi- uh, child of God. Right? You don't have to come to Him uh, you know, in your wretchedness. You come to Him in the righteousness of Christ. Theologians call this the substitutionary atonement. Good, good news. That's what it is. Look at this next slide. Anybody recognize this guy? I just want to know. Anybody been to art class lately? Rembrandt. He's one of the most well-known artists in history. Um, he was a... For his time, he was a deep believer in Jesus, right? A follower of Christ. And while he wouldn't preach or anything like that, he often represented Christ in his artwork, right? He would, if you looked closely at his artwork, you would see the gospel played out. Look at this next slide. And one of his most well-known paintings is the elevation of the cross, 
Now, what you would see if you looked really closely is that guy down there at Jesus' feet. And if you knew the time period that he's portraying and the time that Rembrandt lived in, you would recognize that guy wearing a blue painter's beret. His clothes don't match the time in which this is painted. Matter of fact, look at this next slide. You can see it a little closer here. And what happened was Rembrandt painted himself into the painting. He painted himself into the painting, lifting the cross up, crucifying Christ. Why? He's preaching through his painting. Rembrandt was confessing that he was a sinner for whom Christ came to die. Every person is a helpless sinner who can find forgiveness and grace and mercy and love, understanding, righteousness through the cross of Christ and through his work. Your sin has either been nailed at the cross or it's going to be paid for in eternity. And Christ loved us so much that he came and paid the price. The terrible sinners like us, people that, you know, uh, we know that we've sinned. We know how imperfect we are. He knew it too. And he loved you so much that he went and endured the cross for us so that he could pay for our sin that we could never, ever pay for ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and be dismissed for the word of prayer. That didn't take as long as it... That didn't take as long as your face looks. Amen. And they feel, but we're done. It's 17. I don't know what the, the kiddos, kind of where they're at uh, with their lesson, but we'll, we'll find out in just a second, okay? Let's say, let's say a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father God, thank you again for your word. Lord, we thank you for this holy moment where we have access. Uh, God, we're so grateful that the veil has been torn. God, that there's nothing that separates us from your love and your righteousness, uh, your grace and mercy and forgiveness. Lord, I just pray that everybody here tonight, God, I just hope that they know you as Lord and Savior, that their sins have been forgiven forever, God, and they know that you are their Heavenly Father, and they're your child. Now, Lord, again, I want to lift up our students and our kiddos tonight, God, that you bless them and keep them safe. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray.